Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So one of the things that we've tried to do over the years on this show is talk about incarceration in America. Uh, And I mean, this country, as you probably know, locks up a disproportionate percentage of its population. We're the world's leading jailer nation. Um, And so that's a number, that's an idea. But behind that number, behind that fundamental concept, there are a lot of very interesting and often very troubling realities. And one of them is just the sheer difficulty that people who are incarcerated have in telling their stories, reaching out for help, finding anybody who will care about them or advocate for them or help them change their circumstances. We're going to, once again, in collaboration with the Marshall Project, whom we've done stuff with in the past, we're going to tell you about some opportunities people who are incarcerated have to tell their stories. Imagine that you get arrested for something, uh, whether you're guilty of it or not. Uh, you're going to enter a system that's going to try to deal with it. Imagine that things don't go well for you, and it looks like you're going to wind up in prison. There are three people who will probably have a lot to say about what happens to you next. One of them is a prosecutor. Another one is a judge. Another one's maybe a probation officer. You might notice that none of those people are necessarily on your side. Maybe, <laughs> but there's no real guarantee of that. And and for very long in this country. Prisoners have had very few people available to tell their stories. In that group of very few people, there are some journalists. Uh, there might be some law students or lawyers who get interested. But it's not an easy thing to do. And we're going to talk about that today with John J. Lennon, an incarcerated journalist writing from Sullivan Correctional Facility in upstate New York, not the only facility he has been in. He's a contributing editor at Esquire magazine and a frequent contributor to the New York Times. Uh, his work has been recognized by the National Magazine Awards, and and justifiably so. He's a a hell of a writer. I've been reading his stuff all day. Emily Bazelon is an old friend of the show, uh, a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest, and significantly author of Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. She recently started something called the Prison Letters Project with the help of students from Yale Law School, where she's a lecturer. John, I'm going to have you get us started. Uh, Explain what the Prison Letters Project actually is. Yeah, so the Prison Letters Project you know, stemmed from Emily's front-page piece about Utica Briley, and he was a guy serving 60 years for robbery down in Louisiana, and uh, he, wrote, he wrote Emily a letter asking for help. He heard her on a radio show like this, and she gets a lot of letters, and sometimes, you know, sometimes, as she says in the piece, she can't write back, and that's heartbreaking, but she did write back this time, and, and, and the piece resulted uh, in him getting some justice. But what happens is 
after the piece ran in the front page of the, of the New York Times Magazine, of course, she got a whole lot more letters. And uh, so what she did was she created the Prison Letters Project uh, with her Yale students. And I was really, really happy when uh, a friend of mine who's uh, also formerly incarcerated, Reginald Dwayne Betts, he and I are pretty close writerly buddies and he introduced me to Emily and he told me about the project and I was really, really excited uh, to come on board. So what we'll be doing is just highlighting uh, some letters that Emily's received uh, over the years and uh, once in a while we'll highlight uh, one uh, for the New York Times Magazine. So we're really excited about it. All right, so just to give people kind of a sense, uh, you're about to hear, Kat, this is A1, you're about to hear the voice of Tim Young. When they arrested me, I felt shocked, dazed, and confused because I had no idea what was going on. I had assault rifles being pointed at me from every direction. They didn't tell me why I was being arrested, but they did tell me that if I made one wrong move, they'd blow my effing head off. I was arrested, taken to jail, and thrown into the hole. I was absolutely shocked. I eventually learned that I was being charged with murder. In my naive state, I thought, as soon as you go to court, this will be cleared up. But boy, was I wrong. So, uh, Emily Bazelon, welcome back to our show. Yes, I mean, court would seem like a good place to get something cleared up, but it isn't always that way, particularly because of the high percentage of people who wind up just having to plead out. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think one of the motivations for this project that John and I, I think, feel strongly is that we hear a lot of stories from incarcerated people, and we just have the idea if the public could also hear what we hear, hear some of these voices, like the one that you just played, Tim Young's voice, and absorb these stories, that it might just be a way to draw more resources into helping people who are in jail and prison. And what I mean by that is, you know, journalists writing stories, lawyers representing people, and also pen pals. Utico's letter, to me, I think probably I would never have opened if it weren't for his pen pal, who was a librarian in Oregon. And when I missed his letter, because it was like buried in a big pile at the New York Times Magazine, she emailed me and she sent me a link to an appeals court decision in his case that really got my attention because it supported, I thought, Utico's um, own case for innocence. So there really are things that like everybody can do um, if they're just thinking about people. And there are just so many people on the inside with so many different kinds of issues they're facing. Yeah. And just very quickly, um, Tim Young, maybe Emily, you can just let us know a little bit about who he is. Yeah, sure. I mean, Tim Young was sentenced to death in California based on, by all accounts, a terrible set of murders. Five people were killed in a bar in the town where he was. Um, He was one of a small number of Black residents. He and his brother got accused of this crime. But there were some real problems with the evidence that the jury heard. And there are a bunch of students at Georgetown who've been trying to help Tim Young get his story heard and uh, represent him. And the judge in the case said, you know, look, the problems with how evidence was being handled in that police department are so serious that, you know, there really could be some very troubling aspects of this conviction. And so the question is whether, you know, Young is going to get a real hearing in the court. And 
For better or worse, when there is media attention to a case like this, it can just really help to kind of elevate it and make judges pay attention to it. They should do that with every case, obviously. But, you know, they're really busy, especially with um, state court dockets, which are super full. All right. So, John, give us kind of a sense of what some of the problems are that could conceivably be addressed or remediated or at least modified a little bit like something by something like the prison letters projects in other words uh, if if people if prisoners of incarcerated people are going to write in uh to tell their stories to call attention to what's going on what are they calling attention to and what could conceivably come out of that look there's plenty of sort of injustice that happens in the pursuit of justice, right? Or more accurately, like when prosecutors are looking to win convictions, sometimes they'll withhold evidence because they're sort of uh, gung-ho, or for lack of a better term, to sort of get a conviction. These, these, these murder trials become about sort of ego and, instead of uh, justice, and sometimes, and sometimes this happens, you know? So a lot of letters we get, folks are claiming their innocence, claiming there was an injustice. But you know, sometimes there's injustices when people are guilty, like uh, the Adnan case, right, the, that came to fame through the Serial podcast. You know, the whole world knows about that case because of Serial, but people don't, aren't really sure, even the prosecutor let, let him go, if he's in fact guilty or innocent. But, but they do know that there was an injustice. They do know that the prosecution withheld evidence. So at the Prison Letters Project, we get a lot of letters that, that folks say, hey, I'm, I'm innocent. And so it, it could be, in fact, that they're innocent. Um, I don't think that we're sort of looking at it for, through a true crime lens. We certainly are not. Well, is this person lying to me? And it's you know, sort of doom, doom. We're going to get to the bottom of it. I think it's kind of more like, sure, we'll, we'll take a look at that. Your voice will be heard. And we are uh, documenting that, uh, the students are, at Yale and on the website. And, and once in a while, uh, one of those letters will, 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 will sing to us. And sometimes, you know, we're really even looking for folks to say, hey, look, you know, I've got about 25 years in, and this parole board keeps hitting me, and I got this, this bachelor's degree, and I got, you know, I got a family, and I'm certainly a different person. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we'll highlight those letters, too. We wish we could get more of those letters. John, I want to ask you about one more thing, which is, um, sure. and, and there's a way in which I think this is something that would benefit a lot of different stakeholders, including people who are trying to run prisons. And, and that is the person who has life with no possibility of parole or effectively has life with no possibility of parole. I know you've got a James Baldwin uh, quote t- taped up to your own cell wall. Tell us about that quote. Tell us what it means to you. Yeah, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, it's about hope, and and when a man has no hope, you know, that's a that's a pretty dangerous uh, sort of predicament to be in, and that's not only for the person uh, uh, himself or herself. Uh, it's for the folks that work in prison, and I mean, look, sometimes, uh, like sometimes, there's there's no way out. You know, in in America, we like to we like to give people lights out sentences. Uh, you know, we're the only sort of developed nation that that tends to do that. You know, a lot of European nations. Uh, pretty much put a cap on it. You're going to serve about 20 years. But here, well, uh, that's a phrase we use in prison. You know, they'll, they'll put your lights out, especially if you go to trial. So, so at, at a certain point, you know, the, the crime could be worth a, a sentence that you could perhaps do. But if you push that envelope, it's, you know, it's lights out. So I think it was in the context of that and like sort of like we, myself included, when I was 24 years old, I was a, you know, I was a drug dealer and I was somebody that flouted the law and I was somebody that, 
that committed a terrible crime. Uh, you know, I killed a man on a Brooklyn street. You know, obviously I'm not proud of that, and I'm not the same person today. There's a lot of folks uh, like that, and sometimes they're av- they don't have avenues. Sometimes, you know, like I said, their lights are out. So, and you know, sometimes clemency is it. So, like I said before, we're we're, we're trying to sort of highlight uh, letters that speak to to those cases too. So, uh, Emily, your piece on Utico Briley is. I mean, it's it's a dangerous piece to read for somebody like me because I can feel my blood pressure up around 145 over 110 or something. Uh, just real, just reading about how wrong the system is, how many things that were wrong happened, so many ways in which uh, evidence that could have created alibis for him just wasn't obtained. Sometimes because of ineffectiveness of counsel and just a, a kind of general lack of interest in, in the criminal justice system and figuring out whether he'd really done this thing or not. And one of the things you say in that article is that. You've been writing about criminal law issues and justice issues for, I think, 25 years or so. But this was sort of a different experience, right? This was a way in which you kind of got more involved in the case. You brought your sister, Lara, who's also been on our show. We try to have as many Basilons out as we possibly can. Um, <laughs> and, and so talk a little bit about that and how that might have kind of radicalized you toward doing this project. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it is tricky for journalists to get involved in stories. and. In Utica's case, his letter just had a profound impact on me. I think in the same way, maybe the frustration you felt reading my story, I looked at this letter. Uh, He'd been convicted of an armed robbery in the middle of the night that happened very quickly. There was a single eyewitness who was the victim. That person was white and Utica was black. And there's just a lot to worry about when you hear about cross-racial single witness identification like that. And then the police also used a procedure for um, asking the witness to identify Utico in which they only showed the witness Utico standing in in handcuffs. And that also seemed just really like a potential problem to me. So my first response to this letter was to think, well, this is a person who does not need a journalist. He needs a lawyer. And so I made a bunch of phone calls thinking, well, I won't write about this. I'll just try to help. And then when my sister started working on the case, you know, I was really interested in what she was finding out. And Utica was writing to me a lot. He, we used um, JPay, an email service, to communicate back and forth. And he just, he had a lot of time. He's very charming and funny. And I just grew to care about him. And for a long time, I still figured I wouldn't write about his case. But of course, I was also kind of watching this correspondence develop and keeping an eye on it. And so then it just became this kind of project I was shadowing my sister on, which I loved. And I was also really interested in the politics in New Orleans because what ultimately made a huge difference for Utico was the election of a new district attorney and a new judge in the city. And that just seems like such a compelling story. Once I had all those parts of it and Utico had been exonerated, I decided to take this chance in writing about something I'd been personally involved in and to just be very honest in disclosing the role that I'd played. So, John, you know, there's a way in which reading Emily's piece, you can see that Utico is he's good at telling his story or good at also kind of keeping Emily's attention and maybe uh, her sympathies. He's just, as she says, a very engaging person. Not everybody who's incarcerated is like that. Right. Not everybody has the kind of word skills, the kind of people skills it might take to recruit a, a better advocate, either a journalist or a lawyer or a law student. Can you say a little bit more about that? You you know a lot 
lot of incarcerated people. You talk to a lot of incarcerated people. How good are they at making the case for themselves? I mean, look, unfortunately, not not too good. You know, I mean, a lot of them don't have the resources. Ten out of eleven, you know, sort of seriously mentally ill people that are housed in, in America are incarcerated, housed by the government. So. You know, so we have a you know, large population in prisons. We don't treat people with serious mental illness. We lock them up in this nation. So, you know, when you walk around the prison yard, you know, a lot of folks are in bad shape. So they're not, you know, they're not going to be sort of charming Emily Bays along with, with, uh, with letters. Um, you know, but some, some folks are sort of uh, very aggressive about, you know, their claims of innocence. And Emily speaks to, you know, this, I love the article she wrote because she grapples with, like, what do I do with my, you know, you have this voice, and, and she, she's very, obviously very passionate about the great work she does. And, you know, like, I'm, you know, sort of in that lane, too. I'm trying to uh, have that voice, and, and folks in here know. I've had people stop me in the yard, kind of like in real-life letters, you know, kind of say, yo, what's up, man? Like, I'm innocent with, like, really serious eyes. A lot of times as a journalist, you know, I write for the collective. I write about the, this, that's why I know the stats of folks with serious mental illness. I write about that. I write about, you know, how it is to sort of live with COVID. I write these like sort of felt life pieces that kind of affect the collective. So with this project, there's, there's quite a feeling when you can affect an individual, but it's complicated. Uh, and she, and she faces that complication in the piece. Uh, we'll be able to do that with this project. But as a writer who's pitched stories sometimes to my editors at various different outlets, it's kind of like you get the response like, ah, we don't really have the resources to sort of uh, highlight an individual case. But when somebody gets out, everybody's looking to write about it, right? You, you see that all the time. But in real time, you know, it's it's tough. So to answer your question, yeah, like uh, some people are better than others for advocating for themselves, and then it's sort of sifting through you know, the accuracy of their claims, too. So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite a process. Yeah, one last thing before we go back over to Emily, John, but one of the things from your writing that blew my mind, I didn't understand this or know this. Uh, you did a piece about a guy who was at Attica who really was a small-time offender. I mean, I, it, this was like a, kind of a, a pretty nothing offense, which was dealt with by like somebody in the store before the police even got there. In fact, the guy said he was more afraid of the, you know, the citizen who was arresting him or apprehending him than he was of the police. But he was in Attica because— when you have mental illness, you have to be in certain facilities, and, and there, so a lot of those facilities are are not the you know, the low security, uh, you know, lower offender kind of facilities, right? You wind up in a much higher security setting with probably more dangerous people around you simply because you have a mental illness. Yeah, it's the absurdity of, of, and this is in New York. I'm sure, I'm sure other states have uh, their own absurd sort of rules. Yeah, so if you're a, what's called a level one prisoner, uh, that means level one in, in terms here means that you have a serious mental illness, that, that schizophrenia or bipolar, uh, th- those needs are met uh, at mostly at maximum securities in New York. So those services from Office of Mental Health, that works, and they're like guests of the corrections. They have these satellite units where these folks uh, have to go to maximum security prisons. So, yeah, it's absurd. He was serving two years, Joe Cardo, and when I met him in the yard, you know, I just, I was just like, look at this guy. Yeah, he's picking up cigarette butts. This guy's like invisible. Everybody's walking past him. What's this guy's story? 
I mean, I just lived with him, you know, and just and just got his whole story just right there in, in the yard. And, and you're, you're right. Like when he told me what he was serving time for, my cronies over there at the table, and we're all got 25 to life and more. Um, I felt terrible for the guy, right. you know. And uh, and then I got his story. So and then his story was an Esquire. But yeah, yeah, it's it's an absurd. Talk about injustice, but uh, that's, that's just absurdity. Yeah, I don't even know if we said this or not. The guy was an Attica for, for, you know, kind of a very low-level offense. So, Emily, I want to make sure that we now make it clear to people the mechanics of how this works. Uh, am I coll- correct that this is we're all going to go to freedomreads.org? Is that where this is all housed? And, and maybe say a little bit more about how various stakeholders or just interested parties or people who might want to be pen, pa- pen pals or law students somewhere or whatever, how are they going to interact with this site and this material? Yes. To check out our website, go to freedomreads.org, which is Dwayne Betts' amazing site about building libraries in prison. You can also just Google Prison Letters Project and it'll come up. And in terms of getting involved, if you're an incarcerated person or you know someone who's interested in writing to us, you can write us by snail mail at Yale Law School. The address is online. Or you can send us an email to prisonlettersproject at yale.edu, and we will read it. And we won't put anything online or publicize anything without your permission. Once you write to us, we, um, you know, we log the letter, and then we write back to you. And so part of what's happening is we're trying to respect what kind of information you want to share. And one other thing to mention, my students have been amazing. There are uh, four law students who have worked on this project And I think their communications with the folks who are incarcerated is a kind of value in itself. Not everybody has people who are thinking about them um, and are smart and interested and caring. And I think the students have just done an amazing job and it's been mutually beneficial. The students have learned a lot from that as well. So, uh, John, there's a kind of thought thought experiment that I often do with guests on the show, and I'm going to do it with you. Let's Let's say I put you in charge of kind of everything about the criminal justice system for about five minutes. So you got five minutes to make, you know, one really big change that would correct uh, at the level of criminal justice, at the letter level of penology, um, a, a problem that you're really aware of, keenly aware of because of your own direct observation of it. What would you do with that five minutes of power? How, how would you change the existing system? Well, that's a tall order, you know. There's a lot going on uh, with what we do uh, in, in America, locking folks up. Uh, we're pretty serious about that. But I will say, uh, you know, I, I am a fan of, of Mark Maurer's, like, sort of recent uh, proposal in which he writes in The Meaning of Life, he says, like, that we probably should cap sentences at, 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 at 20 years. Um, it's what all other developed nations are doing. And one of the reasons probably we're not doing it is uh, it has a, probably has a lot to do with race. But, you know, Emily kind of tackles the front end uh, in, in her book, Charged. You know, when you think about the criminal justice system, you kind of, I, I think about it through a story lens, right? It's the beginning, middle, and end. In the beginning, you know, go read Emily's book. She talks a lot about what prosecutors do, Charged. You know, the middle, I mean, it's the black box of prison. You know, you should start treating people a little better in the joint. You know, they may act better. And then in the end, uh, let there be an end, you know. Start helping folks when they get out. Uh, you know, keep them in here forever. They may, 
people that work here may not have the highest suicide rates like corrections officers. Uh, they may might not have their you know, hearts bust in their chests. You know, I mean, it's a pretty tough job for them, too. And I know it's perhaps odd hearing a prisoner say that. But look, these folks got a tough gig. Uh, so, I mean, it affects a lot of different people. So looking at it through that lens, I mean, <laughs> I probably said enough. Yeah, there isn't one fix. There's a lot of fixes. Uh, all right, we have to stop sure there. Thing. John J. Lennon, incarcerated journalist, writing from Sullivan Correctional Facility in upstate New York. Read his work at Esquire Magazine, New York Times, uh, and he's a terrific writer. Uh, Emily Bazelon uh, with us many times before, and I hope also in the future. I think later this week we're having Marty and Ernie Bazelon on, and uh, I think Leonard <laughs> Bazelon will be on next. We just have a lot of Bazelons here. Uh, yeah, it's Bert and Ernie Bazelon. It's Bert and Ernie Bazelon. That's right. Uh, always in their jammies. We recently, she recently started the Prison Letters Project with the help of students from Yale Law School. We really encourage you to look into that. Also, I'm going to plug several times on the show Community Partners in Action. I think they're one of the really great uh, organizations here in Connecticut for formerly incarcerated people. All right. Thank you so much for that. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back to talk about another thing that could conceivably use, be of use to you should you run afoul of the criminal justice system. But I swear I see my reflection Somewhere so high above this wall Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Remember at the top of the show, I said that imagine that you are arrested for either a crime you did or didn't commit uh, and things don't go well and it looks like you're going to go to prison. And I said there are three people who probably have a lot to say, a decisive role in your future. It's a prosecutor, a judge, and maybe a probation person. So none of those people is necessarily going to be on your side. And that's where our next guest comes in. Uh, Justin Paperni is a prison consultant and the co-founder of White Collar Advice and Prison Professors. Uh, he's the author of Lessons from Prison, and he's the subject of a terrific piece in the New York Times by our friend Jack Hitt. Uh, so, Justin Paperni, welcome to our show. 
Thank you for the invitation. So maybe just begin by explaining what these two operations are, these two entities that I just mentioned, Uh, one of them prison professors, the other one white collar advice. Prison Professors is led by my good friend and business partner, Michael Santos, who served 26 consecutive years in prison. He went in in 1987 for a nonviolent drug crime. I met him in his 22nd year in prison. And when we began working together, he helped me accept responsibility, make good use of my prison term. So when I was released in 2009, after serving just one year, I began the for-profit enterprise, white-collar advice that works with defendants, working alongside their lawyers to mitigate sentencing, to understand the stakeholders in the system, to have a productive prison term, and of course, come home ready with opportunities waiting. Michael, after he was released in 2013, began leading and creating Prison Professors, which gives away everything on Prison Professors is free. And while I run the, the for-profit, Michael runs the nonprofit, which is creating content in prisons and jails all across the country. So Michael will be on the road visiting federal and state prisons, teaching, inspiring, and mentoring people who are serving uh, not just short sentences, but sentences as long as life and everything in between. So Jack's piece, which is just terrific, uh, talks in particular about that stretch of time between arrest and sentencing and the things that can be done. But maybe before we get to the things that can be done, maybe you could say a little bit about the typical state of mind, if there is such a thing as a typical state of mind for somebody, including yourself. You went through this in that position. You don't know what's going to happen to you. You weren't expecting this. A lot of people get arrested for things that they just didn't even really think in terms of a possible, you know, arrest and and conviction. It's not where you expected your life to be. And I'm getting the feeling that people are psychologically disoriented, despondent, maybe without hope. Can you say a little bit more about that strange kind of Tibetan bardo state between arrest and sentence? Between arrest and sentencing is certainly the hardest part of the experience, at least in the white collar crime world where sentences can be relatively short, five years or less, and now with prison reform and good time and other avenues to get out earlier, five years is not five years. So that waiting and wondering is devastating. It was Tom Petty who's saying waiting is the hardest part. People go through depression. Many are are suicidal. They lose their job. Their reputation is destroyed. They put on weight. Some can't get out of bed and brush their teeth. And many of them do not feel as if they should have been targeted for prosecution. At worst, they feel it should have been handled civilly. They don't believe they did anything wrong. So it's this whole, all of these things coming together to recognize, one, how hard it is to get into the grips of the criminal justice system. But once you're in, it's very difficult to emerge unscathed. So there's a number of things our team will do. You have to embrace the reality of the situation. And then two, recognize what is the path to getting what you want, which could be the shortest possible sentence. And in our experience, and as articulated in that piece with Jack Kitt, it's not by outsourcing all of the work to counsel. We work with great lawyers. We want people to have great lawyers. But subject matter experts we have interviewed, like federal judges, tell us they want to hear from the defendant. If they're remorseful, why? If they broke the law, what have they learned? If there are victims, do they identify with them? And what is the plan moving forward? That requires work every single day. Some are able to do it, yet some are just in such a a desperate, depressed state that the idea of preparing for sentencing in federal prison is too much to bear. And in so doing, they do very little and they end up getting a longer sentence than they otherwise should have. 
So, Justin, I mean, I'm trying to imagine myself in the position of some of you, some of the people that you work for. And, and I'm thinking, particularly based on everything that you said, that my first instinct, I think the human reflexive response is to tell the potential sentencing authority, no, I'm not that bad a person. You've got it all wrong. They've got it all wrong. And I, and I really, you know, I don't deserve to be punished this way. And I'm being misunderstood. My crime's not that bad. And yeah, maybe it should have been settled on a civil procedure basis instead of the, even the criminal system. And a lot of those instincts, although they're very natural, are, I think, from your point of view and from the point of view of a successful handling of a defendant's case, bad ideas, right? The, the right message at the wrong time is the wrong message, right? <laughs> so there are people who want to convey their innocence or say, I was swept into this, I didn't have bad intentions, and it was aggressive corporate culture, or I was cajoled in many ways. And while true, it's the wrong message, especially if victims are created. So what our team tries to do in a very organic, introspective way is try to identify the influences that led to this indictment or guilty plea conviction and recognize it's not about you. It's not how your life is imploding and how you're going to miss your kids' little league practice. Those are mitigating factors for sure, but it's about the victims that were created and the consequences of taking shortcuts I think good mitigation will articulate the collateral consequences, destroyed reputation, loss of a license, losing freedom, family embarrassment, financial fallout, sure. But the focus needs to be on people that were impacted. And the way to mitigate is by articulating that message. And I think in so doing, rather than say, I didn't mean to do it, you tell the story and let the judge see through his or her own efforts that in the totality of your life, you've led a good life. And this was an out of character moment. Or if you've cheated throughout your life and been caught previously, own it and say, this has very much been a part of my character. Here's my plan to do better. I think you've got to be authentic, but recognize it's not about you. It's about the people that were impacted, namely the victims. And what is the plan to make them whole? So I, I know the answer to this question. I'm kind of asking it as a devil's advocate. But there are some people who would hear about what you're doing and, and what your job is. And, and you can probably see them in the comment section of any newspaper article that's ever written about you. And, and they're going to say, well, no, these people, they're they're guilty. You know, what's the point of having somebody like Justin who's going to help them get lighter sentences? I mean, shouldn't we just sort of trust the system and not be valorizing somebody who's teaching defendants how to game that system? What's your answer when people say stuff like that? We've had clients that are billionaires and they still don't have resources that can match the endless resources of the United States government. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I believe in justice, though I do believe there is overreach and prison sentences are too long. And the government has endless resources to paint a defendant as a career criminal, as scum and trash, and warehouse them in prison camps at great expense to taxpayers. I was in Los Angeles four days ago. Saw three homeless people, four people with needles in their arms. I think we can use those resources for homelessness poverty, mental health issues, rather than continuing to warehouse people who don't need to be warehoused. So our approach is we're helping them mitigate through their own words and efforts why they're worthy of leniency. Let's not forget, a prosecutor has an agenda to get a conviction. And in so doing, they advance their career because that prosecutor someday is going to be a defense attorney. The defense attorney is paid to articulate why their client's worthy of leniency. A federal judge told us if the defendant's a, ba a bad dude, the defense attorney's paid to say that he's a good dude. So we just want to equalize the playing field and help defendants understand how through their own efforts, not outsourcing to paid advocates, how through their own efforts they can mitigate. They have an obligation to demonstrate every fracture in detail of their life that led to that courtroom 
If not, the endless resources of the U.S. government are going to paint them in a negative light that will lead to a longer prison term, more pain and misery for the family and victims who want the criminal home to make money to repay them. So there's kind of a mythology in this country that prisons exist, yes, to remove possibly dangerous people uh, from the flow of society uh, and possibly to deter uh, people from committing worse offenses and to rehabilitate people. And I mean, it's really that last piece that I think seems, based on what I've been able to understand about our prison system, to be a mythology. It might be true if we went and looked at some some prisons in Western Europe or in Scandinavia or someplace like that, but it doesn't seem as though that's really what's happening here in this country. The idea that we are going to rehabilitate somebody, give them the skills they need to reenter society, and the wherewithal to to exploit those skills to lead a meaningful, non-criminal life. But I'd love to hear what you had to say about that. If you believe, if someone believes the prison system reforms, it's like believing tobacco companies truly don't want you to buy cigarettes. It's absurd. Right. The the longer someone is exposed to corrections, the less likely they are to succeed upon their release. And that's why this very cliched revolving door of coming out and going back in exists and continues. So certainly there are some people who are violent who should remain in prison. How long we leave that to judges to decide. But non-criminogenic people who will be in and out of the system for the first time, we think that while prison may be a consequence and some deserve to go at how long. For, for what expense? I believe that a prison at times is warranted, but the lion's share of people are non-criminogenic. It's the only time they're going to go through the system. And the greatest consequence for them is not prison. It's the lifelong repercussions that follow an indictment in prison term. All right. We're going to have to stop there. I really would encourage people to read Jack's piece. Jack, hit our friend. Want to do less time? A prison consultant might be able to help. That was in the New York Times. Uh, Justin Pepperney is a prison consultant and the co-founder of White Collar Advice and Prison Professors. He's the author of Lessons from Prison. We'll take a break and we'll tell you one other way that people who are incarcerated are communicating with the outside world about their lives. To the warden of the penitentiary I'm not in your town to stay And I'll soon be on my way I'm just here to get my baby out of jail Oh, warden, I'm just here to get my baby out of jail so it's time to say some thank yous. Uh, first of all, Cat Pastor is our technical producer today and just about every day. And this is, of course, the return, uh, one of the many returns of senior producer emeritus Betsy Kaplan. Uh, this is uh, this whole subject is kind of one of her specialty areas. And uh, we're glad to get a chance to do this kind of a show with her. So, well, before I even introduce the guest here, I'm going to play uh, a portion of a TikTok video by someone named Marcy Marie. Then we're going to come back. We're going to explain to you what you just heard. Hey, y'all. There have definitely been things that have triggered my PTSD symptoms 
in the free world. Cooking and doing these videos for y'all, answering questions, talking to you guys, that is definitely not a trigger. It's quite the opposite. I find it very therapeutic to share my experience with you. Um, also, the creating food is a bit nostalgic. It just reminds me of good people and moments of joy that I had during my incarceration, even though it was awfully, I mean, it was awful, right? The bottom line is prison is horrible, but there are good people in there and you do form bonds. And often those joyful moments are surrounded by food. There is um, some triggering things that have happened to me. Um, I talked about when I leave um, the warehouse at Amazon, there's some security there. But leaving, when I when I see those security guards, sometimes there's just like this little hint that's like, you're not supposed to leave. You're not supposed to pass these people. All right. Joining us now is Rob Kaiser Schatzline, a freelance writer who writes about American life for numerous mm -hmm. publications, including The New York Times, where he wrote about this, The New Republic and The Baffler. Rob, welcome to our show. Thanks. So tell us about Marcy Marie. Who is she? What were we just listening to? Marcy Marie is a, a formerly incarcerated person from the uh, Texas state prison system who is one of a new set of people who's kind of like a prison life influencer on uh, TikTok. Uh, one of a number of people who kind of explain what life behind bars is like. So one of the things that she does, she does a lot of TikTok videos about food, right? She shows how right. Im improbably how you could make pizza with a limited number of non-culinary tools at your disposal. And there are other videos that will, as well that shows the show how incarcerated people are somehow or other able to make things outside of a kitchen environment. Maybe you could say a little bit more about this, you know, why in particular she does that. She, you know, has a lot of followers who are also formerly incarcerated people who are kind of, as she said, nostalgic for some elements of prison life. So they will ask about certain recipes or say, you know, tell her to show people how they made, you know, something like a tamale in prison or something like that. The other thing is that she tries to bridge the gap between the sensational like public understanding of what prison is like that we get from drama shows and like really sensational reality shows. And she tries to explain just kind of the more mundane practical things that people might not get from those types of shows. And people seem pretty interested in it because they ask a lot of questions. And then a lot of her page is just responding to very practical questions about like, is it okay to make friends in prison? Um, how do you iron your clothes? And how do you, go to the bathroom, things like that. So I think this is interesting as well because there's a way in which prison serves many different functions, but I think one of the functions it winds up serving, and it's not a function we necessarily seek, but I think society kind of exploits this function, is it just gets people out of sight, and out of sight is out of mind. So there's this kind of way in which this huge group of people, 1.2 million, I think, in your article, uh, this enormous sector of the American population is just not particularly real. If, you, as you just suggested, we see any representations of them, it tends to be in kind of high-stakes, super-violent fictional dramas like Oz, Prison Break, stuff like that, and, and more recently, a little bit more humanizing in, in a show like Orange is the New Black. But what we don't see is this kind of cheerful kind of person who 
is willing to talk about prison cuisine, but also about what it's like just to be out and to walk out of an Amazon facility thinking, can I do this? Is somebody going to stop me? And and that's a trauma that I think we don't think about too much. You finally get out, but you don't entirely 100% feel like you're out. Well, I think that, you know, mass incarceration has been this mass warehousing of people away from, and, you know, there's just like, uh, a lot of censorship and, you know, a limitation on free speech within prisons that make it so that we don't understand the reality and the prisons are able to, you know, certain prison systems are able to censor the information that comes in and out of there. So we don't, it's hard to get an accurate idea of what that life is like, but like, as you were saying, you know, there are millions of people uh, who have been to prison, who are in prison, and it's a large part of the population. That's their lived experience. So it's not an insignificant part of the American experience today, which we really don't have access to because of that kind of like uh, difficulty of getting the information out. So social media has kind of opened up the ability for people who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated to express what their reality is. And as you said, what it's like to be someone who was incarcerated and now lives outside with whatever the particular, you know, possibly post-traumatic stress disorder, like the triggers for that are. And like other people talk about, you know, just uh, how difficult it is to get an apartment and other challenges that formerly incarcerated people have that you might not think of. And, you know, they're obviously making this content as someone who seems very normal and you wouldn't recognize them on the street as someone who was incarcerated, but they have these limitations to their life that you wouldn't expect and or ask for if you had met them. And that's another thing they, they address is the, the kind of rote, somewhat uh, tiring questions that they get and the questions that they don't get, which is more the questions that humanize them in their experience. Yeah. Like, can you think of an example of that? Like, what would what's a question we should be asking a person like her or any formerly incarcerated person? What kinds of things should we ask about that we don't? Well, you know, I can't really say. I would want to leave that to someone who was incarcerated or formerly incarcerated. But, you know, what people have suggested is that a lot of the cliches about prison are, you know, some are true, some are not. But getting beyond that, it's just about... Like, what did you do on a daily basis and who are your friends and how did you find joy in there? And like, just understand that there were people who are maybe not in prison for a violent crime. And uh, there's all sorts of things that can send people to jail and prison. And the people who come out of that are very complex. And engaging with that is is really important that um, we don't just totally write that portion of our society off as um, either damaged or as lacking a complexity that other people might have. I, You know, I think if there's a theme running through this show, to a certain degree, it's the theme of maybe reversing the the peristaltic flow of information for incarcerated right. people. There's a way in which incarcerated people for a very long time have been dependent on somebody finding out about them, somebody uh, being willing to tell their story, either a journalist or maybe a new lawyer or some kind of prison advocate or, or a nonprofit. And in what you're writing about here and to a certain degree also what we are talking about at the top of the show is this idea, well, what if prisoners could tell more about themselves? And I don't right. think when people think about TikTok, they don't necessarily think, oh, yeah, that'd be a good way for prisoners to talk to us. But but I mean, that's really what we're talking about, right? User created content uh, and, and almost no population you can think of needs to do that more than prisoners. 
Yeah, I would say that incarcerated people have not had the access to that. And, you know, in the beginning of the uh, rise of mass incarceration in the mid-century, there were prison newspapers and, and things like that. And then a lot of them got kind of like censored out of existence. And now, you know, San Quentin has a, a news outlet and a podcast called Ear Hustle, which has allowed people to make media that is from within prisons. And there's like a journalistic uh, endeavor called Empowerment Avenue, which pairs incarcerated journalists with uh, outlets so they can publish their own material and investigations from within inside prison. You know, the tide has turned against mass incarceration, and so that the kind of censorship that had kept the conditions of prison kind of under uh, wraps have kind of loosened and been less acceptable to the public. And people are more interested in hearing the stories about what is going on with people who who are incarcerated. So yeah, definitely like an opening. And I think that it's both social media and also just like the lower cost of, you know, producing media, something like the San Quentin news or your hustle or something like that is like possible to do with limited resources. The other thing is that, you know, a lot of prison news was censored. So it ended up being about triumphs and successes that happened within prison. So it always was kind of a skewed, way of looking at prison life but now we kind of like get that picture in addition to other stories right i i want to just first of all say ear hustle has turned into a pretty big deal uh and you're yep. right the the bar to entry uh in digital media and digital journalism digital digital expression is lower uh than any bar that existed before it in in terms of the ability to reach a large audience if if things click and you do it right. And I, you know, we're going to have to wrap up the show pretty soon, Rob. But I think the other irony here is if you lock up so many people and America locks up, you know, a wildly disproportionate percentage of its overall population, you're going to start locking up people who have pretty interesting talents, who are maybe able to, you know, become journalists while incarcerated, who are going to be able to tell their stories on a podcast or make a really great TikTok video. It's it's one of the strange byproducts of our over-incarceration is that there are all kinds of people in there who maybe now, because the bar is a little bit lower, can find a way to tell their stories. Well, it's also just that the quantity of people in there is so high that it's a, it's a you know, distinct subculture within American life. And that, you know, of course, there's going to be people who can express, you know, what's going on there. But as long, you know, when you, when the incarceration rate stays so high, or like the number of people in prison stays so high, it becomes uh, something where it's a critical mass of people in there who have formed a certain culture that deserves some attention because it's definitely part of the reality of, of American life today. So if it remained really low and then it would just be marginal and, you know, no one would really care because, or they might care less because it would be like, you know, any small society that doesn't have consequence, but it touches almost, you know, a thousand, hundreds of thousands of uh, people every day who have friends and relatives and things like that who are, who are in prison. So it becomes more and more consequential the more and more people you lock up. Right. So we're going to have to stop there. Rob Kaiser Schatzlein right. is a freelance writer who writes about American life for numerous publications. He wrote in the New York Times, why does the prison life content on TikTok 
feel so familiar. I just want to say as we're ending here, you know, that this is a population that we don't think about that much. And I think there are people who don't want us to think about them that much. But it's important that we do for a variety of reasons, ranging from moral and ethical and spiritual to practical. And so if there's an organization, I mean, here at this show, Community Partners in Action here in Connecticut is one that I really have a lot of esteem for in terms of helping out formerly incarcerated people, starting starting to bring them back into the mainstream. But pick some, pick somebody, pick something. If any of this was meaningful to you, and support it and help it, because we got a problem here, and it's not going to get fixed anytime soon. But it's not going to fix get fixed at all if nobody does anything. So thanks for listening today, and we will be back with more later in the week. 